0: Thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to guide us as we as we look at this word and and see the price that you paid for our sins in your Son's precious name. Amen. 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 Matthew chapter twenty six, and we're going to be starting back on chapter uh, verse twenty six, <laughs> and uh, Jesus is. Pre- you know, told them that uh, he's going to be portrayed and that it was one of them that were going to portray him and then told him to go and do what he was going to do quickly. And then we get into the Lord's Supper. So verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink you all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the wine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right. And we do this every, you know, every other month. We talk about the Lord's Supper. And read. this is one of the ones we read probably three times a year for the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, they remember, they were up in the upper room eating the Passover. And the Passover was the celebration of the death angel passing over the firstborn in Egypt. And the death angel swept all through Egypt, killing the firstborn of people and animals, except for those that were in a house protected by the blood of the Passover lamb, put on the the door, the top of the door, the bottom of the door, the side, and both sides of the door, which formed a cross which was what Jesus was going to die, and he dies as our Passover lamb to give us life. And this is what they're celebrating, and he's, and he's taking it to the next level before the people and saying, you know, when you do this, I want you to remember that I'm bringing it to a new reality for you. And we've talked about this. He's the Passover lamb. He's going to die on Pas- you know, right, uh, as the Passover lamb. So they're actually eating the Passover dinner the day before they're supposed to normally eat it. Okay, because the Passover lamb dies on the day that he dies, which is the next day. And then that night they will eat, they will eat the, the uh, Passover lamb. Uh, so they're actually practicing Passover the, a night ahead of time, which is kind of strange in and of itself, because he's going to die as the Passover lamb. And so he's taking the food, the bread, and he says, Take and eat. This is my body. And he's picturing the Passover lamb. If, if you remember the story from uh, Exodus, they killed the lamb. They had to eat all of the lamb before the morning. So you made sure you had enough people in your, your family group to be able to eat the whole, whole lamb, however many people that took to eat that lamb. And anything that was left over was to be burnt in the fire and not left over. And so Jesus is telling you this, his disciples this is my body eat it now we can even go so far as to say jesus is the word and we are as christians to eat the word which is his body and we are fulfilling that also in our daily studies with him as we consume the word and we feed our spiritual bodies through the word and because that is where life is his life is in the eating of the flesh And God did a great miracle, if you remember, on Passover, is that he healed the infirmities of the Israelites. When they left, none of them were sick. None of them were lame. Why? Because they had a long walk ahead of themselves. So God did a miracle for them and healed bodies and then took them out. You know, it was a big deal. The the Passover was a huge deal for them. And because the next Deuteronomy, remember, he said none of you were lame. You didn't. Your feet didn't swell. You you wore the same shoes the entire time you walked for 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes didn't wear out. Now, for some people, that would be a horror. Your clothes never wearing out and never having to go buy more clothes or make new clothes. But he says your clothes did not wear out for 40 years. Your shoes did not wear out for 40 years. Uh, well, now, like huh? They didn't have any process to go buy stuff. And they had no need to go buy stuff. It lasted. Now, for those who like buying new clothes or shopping for shoes, that would be a horrendous problem not to, not to need to, probably. I
1: thought all those stuff would
0: wear out more. Huh? I thought their
1: stuff would wear out
0: more because of um, Naturally, it should have.
1: Supernaturally.
0: But no God, but God supernaturally happened. made it not wear out. He kept them healthy during the during the time that they walked. Huh? The Israelites. All of of Israel all of Israel Israel, during their wandering time, he said, Your clothes didn't wear out, your shoes didn't wear out, your feet didn't swell and and you didn't get sick. And all he could do was whine and complain. And all he did was whine and complain the whole time. You know, God, we're, we're so tired of this. Uh, you know, this manna—that's perfect food to keep us alive and healthy—all this time. Uh, you know, we, we don't like it. We want something else. Uh, you know, we want the garlic and the melons that we used to have in, in Egypt. You know, you know, granted, we were slaves and 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 had our lives miserable, but you know, we ate well. <laughs> Which they probably didn't really eat that well. How many times do we look back on something and think of it, think of it as something really wonderful? But if we really think about the details, we were miserable and nothing. Nothing was as good as we remembered it being.
1: The good old days.
0: days. Well, all we know about manna was that it was the size of a coriander seed and it was white. Coriander seed. (laughs) Really tiny. Coriander is a very small, uh, very small seed. It's even smaller than a peppercorn. It's more like uh, what is it? Huh? No, it's smaller than that. It's more like a poppy seed. Oh, it, okay, it's maybe a little bit bigger than a poppy seed, but uh, poppy's not the right one. Poppy seeds are little tiny things, but but it wasn't very big seed. I mean it wasn't they you actually had to go work to go pick this manna up because coriander's not that big. I thought it was just a big blob of stuff. No, it was very you worked at picking up and putting it into these containers each day and it came in it came with the dew in the morning and and that was your food for the day. Mm-hmm. Now, what it tasted like, nobody really knows. They don't tell us. Uh, it tasted like chicken. It <laughs> like chicken. <laughs> I don't know about that. So. I read somewhere where somebody said taste it tasted like something.
1: But I don't, I don't, I don't
0: know the traditions tell us that there's something that tasted like honey, yeah. Yeah, honey and something else. But that's only the tradition, so nobody knows what it tasted like. Maybe it tasted something like, you know, it was supernatural. Maybe it tasted different to every single person. I don't know. Which may be why there's no story about what it tastes like. Uh, but God provided for his people and he fed them and kept them alive. And for us as Christians, he keeps us fed and alive spiritually. You know, and there's something that's really great about getting into his word and being fed and made alive in our spirit. And I've walked with God for just a few years, 46 of them. <laughs> and, you know, it's wonderful to walk and get closer and closer to him and just see how he meets the needs and he strengthens everything and, and keeps me comforted in all things. Doesn't mean I've never had any problems, but I know that he's in charge, and that makes going through the problems a whole lot easier because you just look at God, okay, God, you've got a reason for this. And when we start really believing the word of God, it will change everything that we go through. I was listening to one of the pastors, maybe the one I had on disc or something, but he was talking about you know, how Christians should be looking forward to dying. You know, and I've said it many times. I've said it many times. And uh, it, I think it really is true. You know, not that we're going to go out and do something stupid or kill ourselves, but you know, we should be looking forward to the day that God's done with us and we get to go to heaven. You know, Paul said, I'm longing to go to heaven, but it's better for you, church that he was talking to, that I remain. Why? Because Paul was their teacher and their pastor, and it was good for him to teach them. And as long as he had somebody to teach and was going to grow, he was willing to say, God, I'll stay and do this for you as long as I need to. I'll suffer in this world. But he was looking forward to the day when he'd get to go to heaven. And we all should be that way. You know, because heaven is so much better than anything we face on this world, I don't care what you've got. You know, you might be a millionaire and have all the all the things you want to have, and you know everything looking good in your life. But it's still nothing compared to what heaven is. And how do we know that? Because Solomon wrote a very long book called Ecclesiastes that said all this stuff is is not is nothing. You know, wealth is nothing. Accomplishments are nothing. You know. Uh, Possessions are nothing. And if it was anybody else writing that book than Solomon, people would go, oh, yeah, right, you know. What do you know? Is
1: that why it's
0: hard for a rich man to cross over? Well, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, and that's because they trust in their own money, not in God, usually. And if you think about it, most people who are wealthy, they're very hard to reach for the gospel because... They have everything as far as they're concerned, even though they don't have everything, and they know they don't, they put their trust in their wealth. It's like, I, I want something, I'll go buy it. I don't need to ask God for it. I, you know, I want to I bless somebody, I'll just go out and give them money, and no, you know, I don't have to pray about it, I don't have to think about it. So they tend to trust in their money. When Jesus talked to the rich young ruler, he goes, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus gave him a couple of the commandments, and he goes, Well, I've done all those things since I was a kid, you know, since I was a youth. And Jesus said, you know, go and sell all that you have and follow me. Now, what was he did, he, did he mean that everybody has to sell everything they have? You can't be rich and go to heaven? No, but the point was the rich young man ruler went away sad because he had much property. He had much so what Jesus was really saying is, get rid of your idol and follow me. Well,
1: you just asked him to see where he was
0: at. Uh, I think in his case, he wanted him to sell it and, and, tr- and put trust into it, not just see if he was willing to. Because his idol, and number one, he knew he wouldn't because he knew the man in his heart and knew that his wealth I was, was saying, his idol. He already knew what his decision was. Yeah, he knew, he knew he that that man...
1: That if, you have it all, if you sell it all, you still have the wealth. No, he said give your, he said give it all away.
0: Yeah, give it all away. That's
1: probably the part that
0: got him. Well, just yeah, not having not having stuff would have been the thought part that got him because his whole life was built on this wealth and for a lot of rich people it is it is a trap. Wealth can be a real trap for people because they start depending on their money. Most wealthy people do not tithe. And I've understood, and I've shared this with you. It's pretty understandable if you're making four or five thousand dollars a month, and your tithe is four, four hundred, you know, five hundred dollars. That's a pretty significant, you know, sum of change, and most people won't give it because they think about, you know, well, this is my car payment, this is my boat payment, this is the payment on my vacation house, you know, and it's a big deal. Yeah, that's poor don't have. Yeah, we don't have as many payments. So plus. Plus, if all you're making is $2,000 a month, you know what is $200? Uh, you know what does it really pay for? Or let's say you're only making $1,200 a month. You know what's $120 pay for? And so you're you're more willing to give it and give God that chance of, you know, God, you say do it. I'm going to trust you. And you know it's interesting because I give more than the tithe, and some of my checks are can be pretty good-sized checks. And I'm going, wow, God! You know, I didn't even think about how much I was given until I started doing my taxes this year. You know, and all of a sudden realized I gave quite a bit of money. You know, and but my heart was right; I wasn't doing it just you know. And God said, God and I have a percentage that I give, and I give that percentage, whatever it is. I write my check, and then give it to the church. And that's just between him and me. And, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody else know, knows because I'm not going to tell them. Uh, and, you know, and, as I, and I've shared with you, as I've told John, I don't want to know who gives who doesn't give. I don't want to know how much anybody gives. It's none of my business to know who, who's giving in the church because it's irrelevant to me. My job is to teach everybody whether they're giving, not giving, and, and let, them, let them and God work out what they're going to do. But Jesus here in the Passover is changing the Passover to a new level. He said this cup of the wine that they were giving out is my blood. He's reminding the disciples that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And blood needed to be shed and for, for the forgiveness of sin it had to be perfect blood. Which is why every lamb, every Every offering before Jesus was a picture of what Jesus was going to do. Because Jesus had a perfect life, and being God, he could die for man and take away our sins. We had the first Adam that sinned, and Jesus, is, as Paul tells us, is the second Adam. He came and lived a perfect life so that he could be the redemption price for mankind. And he paid the price, he was the kinsman redeemer. Which some of you talked about you're looking forward to the day we get to Ruth. Eventually, we'll get to Ruth, and what, the book of Ruth is all about the kinsman redeemer, which we talked a little bit about in in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The kinsman redeemer was one that, if a individual in the family died and did not leave have family, or especially boys, the nearest kin was to to uh, marry his wife. And the first child for that, out of that union was given the name of the brother, or the, the brother or the nearest the kin that, that was a, her first husband. And that child would then take the possession of his, you know, his actual father, <laughs> who his father should have been. I'm trying to get that in the right context. I hope you understood that. You know. not, not his real father, but who his wife's first husband was. And it was a way that God said he told the people your inheritance will never be taken and given to another. And in Jerusalem the inheritance of the, of the land that we just talked about in Joshua you know, was given to each tribe and the tribes gave it to the families and that parcel of land belonged to that tribe and that family through perpetuity for all practical purposes because if somebody died then their nearest kinsmen would make sure that they had an heir to take over their land, which is why in Deuteronomy, when, the, when those young ladies went to, Joshua, uh, went to Moses and said, hey, our father died, we have no brothers, why should our family not get an inheritance? And Moses said, I don't know, let me go talk to God. <laughs> and remember, God said, yes, I agree with them, but there is one stipulation, they cannot marry anybody outside of their tribe because that would potentially put the land into another tribe's name. So he said, those girls- No community property. No community property. It belonged to the, it belonged, it, would, it was to stay in that tribe so that you didn't have, you know, this little enclave in the middle of uh, Judah that all of a sudden the uh, uh, Ephra- Ephraimites, you know, married some girl in there and all of a sudden it became their land in the middle of their land. and." You know, God says, no, this is Judah's land, it's going to stay Judah. This is the Ephraim's land, it's going to stay with Ephraim. And he made all these provisions to make sure that they've kept their possession through the kinsman redeemer. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer for all of humanity. He has bought back man so that we can have our inheritance, which is heaven and a relationship with God. And that is what it's all about. And that's why the book of Ruth is a lovely love story, but a spiritual love story even greater. And we get to that one. I don't know how I got onto that one, but. <laughs> uh, but here we are in the upper room, and he's saying, Remember. You know, he's making this, when you do the Passover, remember that I am changing this to my blood, my body. So from that point on, as he's. Jewish disciples have Passover, they're going to think, they're always going to be thinking about communion. Now, we do communion without having the whole Passover dinner <laughs> attached to it, because we just take that one little section out of it, and uh, they have this dinner. All right, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then said Jesus unto them, All of you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all all shall be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you that this night before the cock crow, you shall deny me three times. Though Though I should die with you, Yet will I not deny you. Likewise said all the uh, disciples. All right, so they, they're on their walk from Jerusalem in the upper room to Mount Olives, which is about an hour's walk from what I've told. And as they're going, he's going, oh, by the way, you know, uh, tonight all of you are going to be offended and, and run away. You know, how would you, how would you like that? You, you've been following him all this time, and all of a sudden he tells you, uh, by the way, you're all going to run away. Uh, this is something that would be unbelievable to them. They've been following Jesus for four years. They've been, they've been walking with him wherever they're going. They've, they've watched the scribes and Pharisees attacking him. They've, they've uh, st- stood by Jesus' side during all of this. And then all of a sudden he says, uh, You guys are going to leave me tonight. And he says... Why does he tell them this? And he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, and he says, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. All right? So he's telling them, he's been telling them all along, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. They haven't believed him. They haven't even really heard him in, in real essence. They just they, It is so far from anything that they can fathom that they will not believe that he's going to die. And we kind of look at this and we read through this and go, how could they not believe that he was going to die? And has he ever lied to them before? <laughs> he's never lied to you. Everything he said has been true. But in their mindset, he's the Messiah. The Messiah was coming to start a kingdom that was going to make Israel the center of the world. It was going to make Israel the superpower of the world. Nobody was going to take you know take it. All commerce was going to go through them. And that's all they ever saw Jesus through before he, before he died and before the Holy Spirit came okay their, their mindset was we're following the Messiah he's gonna set up a kingdom it's gonna be forever and we're going to be helping him rule, start this kingdom and every time he started speaking about dying they're going does not compute ignore <laughs> and you know we need to be careful because sometimes we'll do that in our own life you know, we get so focused in on God doing something in a certain way and we start reading the scriptures and we go, "Okay, God, these scriptures don't compute." Uh, you know, ignore. And we have to be careful of that. It's easy to do. Especially as we're learning to grow in him, it's easy to look at something and say, "Nope, don't uh, God, you say there's going to be pain in our life? Nope, doesn't compute. We're supposed to everything's supposed to be good when we're walking with you." And he goes, "Well, "No, I I promised you a hard time." And You know, I promise that I'll be with you during the hard time, but I promise that the world's going to hate you. I promise that all these things are going to happen. And yet, when you're, especially as a new Christian, we go, doesn't compute, ignore. And as we grow, we hopefully get to a place where we go, okay, God, I don't understand it, but you said that this is what you're going to do, and I'm going to trust that you're speaking the truth. And we want to be very careful. Job was a prosperity gospel person. You know, he figured that if you did right with God, you're going to be blessed. Now, the crazy thing about it is the Bible teaches that if you do right, you generally get blessed. Blessed, but it's not a promise that you're going to do that. And this is why we've got to be careful. God says that He's going to reward His children. Now, what is that reward? Not always physical. Sometimes it's spiritual or emotional rewards. It's maybe future heavenly rewards. And sometimes it can be physical rewards. There's times in our life where everything seems to be going right and we seem to be being blessed with things as well as spiritual and and relationships. And then there's times he says, are you going to trust in me or are you going to trust in your stuff? And he gives us a chance to find out that stuff's not that important. And that's why Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and I've learned to be content with little. And he had those times when everything seemed to be going good for him, as physically blessed, and then there were times when, God, all I have is you. And we need to be able to understand there are those times when we need to be saying, God, all I have is you. Nothing seems to be working, and I have nothing. Everything I'm going to, everything I have seems to be disappearing and people wanting it more than I do and taking it away. And, and you know, but I'm going to just trust in you. And watch what he does. God is a big God and wants to meet our needs. And so they're on their way out, and he says, uh, you guys are all going to leave me, all of you. But then again, in verse 32, he goes, but after I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Okay, he says, I'm going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and by the way, I'm coming back to life. And they never, they never seemed to connect those two. They never seemed to connect, number one, that he was going to die. And they never connected with that, that once he was dead, he was going to rise again. And they're only hours before he's going to die, be arrested and die, that he's telling them one more time, you're all going to leave me, but you know, once you leave, go to Galilee. Go to Galilee, and I will be, meet you up in Galilee. And we do find they do go to Galilee. <laughs> Uh, Eventually, (laughs) and uh, good old Peter, you know, Peter says, "You know, hey, if every one of these other guys are going to give up, I won't leave you." And you know, we look at this and we say, number one, we know Peter didn't understand what he was saying because we 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 can see him falling away anyway. But when he made this boast, he fully meant. In my strength, I plan to follow after you. We need to be very careful when we start to try to make boasts in our own strength because God will say, your own strength is not what I want. you think you can do it on your own? You know, and he'll let us fall flat on our face if we try to do it on our own and you know, then make us wallow around in the mud until we're ready to say, I'm tired of doing it on my own. You know, he'll let us fall flat on our face in the mud hole and then he'll let us just sink around in the mud hole until we're ready to say, all right, God, I'm done. And we see this later with Peter, how he falls away and his response is, you know, well, my, my just, I was following him, he's dead. I, re, I rejected him, so even if he does come back to life, you know, he's not going to accept me. And what does he say? I'm going back to fishing. This is what I know how to do. I, I, was, I used to be a fisherman, and I fell flat on my face. I cannot go back to God, so I'm going to go back to fishing. And, you know, this is something we have to be very careful of because oftentimes we will, when we get really down low, if we don't look to God, we'll fall back into our flesh and whatever we know how to do in our flesh and try to fix things in our own way of doing things rather than depending on God through repentance. And that's what Peter does, even though, you know, even though he's starting here saying, you know, hey, you know, I don't know about the rest of these guys, they may leave you, but hey, I'll be right by your side no matter what. And he meant it. He meant it. He really truly meant what he said. He was going to stand by Jesus' side. He had every intention to, I'm sure. This wasn't just an idle boast in his his mind. Uh, from what we understand, Peter was the oldest of the disciples. Uh because when they paid the temple tax, it was only he and Jesus that had to pay the tax, which meant the other ones were under, under 30 years old. And people have said that these the disciples were just young men, and maybe even teenagers. And Peter was the old the old man among the group. He was almost he was just about Jesus' age. He was the old the old timer of the group. And that's why he's, Jesus is looking at him. You'll be the leader. You you will be leading because of your age and your your responsibilities and you know Peter's real and bold you know hey you know you are know, right I'm the, I'm the old man in this group I'm not going to leave you I I I am more of a man than that I won't I won't leave you I won't be a coward and he really meant it when he said it and we'll see later on he did mean it he he started out being very bold and then Jesus turned to him and said, you know, before the before the, night, before the cock crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. You know, Peter, Peter's kind of being put back in his place, and yet, in verse 35, he says, though I should die with you, yet I will not deny you. And he's meaning it. He really means at this time that he says, I'm ready to die for you. If that's what it takes, I'm ready to die with you. And as soon as he said that, all the other disciples jump on the bandwagon and say, "We're not going We're not leaving you either." You know, and you kind of hit a statement on this. You know, how many times did Jesus lie to his lie to his disciples as they walked with him for four years was zero, and yet every time they he said something that they really didn't agree with, they contra- they had tried to contradict him. You know, and we need to be careful because we tend to try to do the same things oftentimes with God. You know that. You know, God, uh, you you've said this, but I just don't I don't know if I believe it. You say you say that I'm a sinner that and I will always tend towards sin. God, I just don't believe it. And then in our flesh, we'll fall down into sin every single time, because that's what the flesh wants to do. Unless it's crucified, we in Christ living in us, we have no power to be successfully conquering over sin. And we need to be careful. We need to start agreeing with God. What God says in His Word, we need to agree with quickly. Because when we start arguing with God, well God, you just don't know, you know, God, I'm not like everybody else. I can I can do something that others can't do. And we might even think, just like Peter and the disciples, yeah, I'm I'm strong. I can I I will never do this. And I've said over and over, whatever you think whenever you hear yourself saying, I will never fall into that sin or I would never do that, beware. <laughs> because you're probably going to find yourself doing just that thing that you said you would never do. Peter says, I'll never deny you. Now, all these other wimps might, but I, I'm not going to deny you. And Jesus said, yes, you will. You, you, you are going to. Your flesh will get in the way and your flesh will not be able to maintain over the long run. Alright, verse 36. Then came Jesus unto the place called Gethsemane and said unto his disciples, sit you here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began as to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then said he then unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry you here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. Not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them asleep. And said unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we'll stop there for a moment. He makes it to Gethsemane. And he takes his disciples up there and he says, You know, you all sit here and pray. And he takes Peter and the sons of Zebedee. Does anybody remember who the sons of Zebedee are? James and John. (laughs) We'll help you out. (laughs) The Sons of Thunder is another name that they get. He, so he takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes a little further in. And these three are really get to be known as the inner circle of Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples, and he had the three that he seemed to have had a special relationship. John, of course, refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple Jesus loved. Like he didn't love all the other disciples, but he at least felt that he was loved special, and Peter was always the one right there, no matter what was going on with Jesus. So he takes them further in and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now this word sorrowful in Greek literally means so sorrowful that it leads to one to death. Jesus is under extreme attack in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point where he is not at peace. He is looking at being pressed. Luke tells us that he was so under stress that he sweat drops of blood, which is a physical condition that if you are so under stress, you literally are dying if you're so overstressed and the capillaries will pop and you will sweat blood out of your pores and usually it leads to hospitalization or death because there's so much pressure going on. This is what was happening to Jesus in the garden, that he was dying, as far as I'm concerned. He sits down and he prays to God and he says, Oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. The most important question on this statement is, what is this cup? There's two opinions on that. There's the majority opinion that I disagree with, which is, as you know, I'm not the first time that I disagree. The majority opinion is that Jesus was praying that let the cross pass, all of a sudden afraid of the cross and said, let the cross not, not come. Okay, that's the majority. Now, what they'll teach you at that point is, fear is okay because, see, Jesus was afraid when it came down to obeying God's word and it fits into this whole idea of i have to be i have to be i can be afraid of god's will because jesus was i disagree wholeheartedly every part of their belief system i disagree with because i've shared with you number 1 i believe that fear is a sin because it presumes against god's sovereignty and jesus would never have presumed against his father's sovereignty because if he's praying for the cross don't don't let me go to the cross it's because, and then they'll say, because he's going to face the cross within 12 hours, that all of a sudden the enormity of what he was about to, to face scared him in his human nature. I understand their arguments. I just totally disagree with them. Now, going back to your question about fear, if you have a real reason to fear, fear and flight are one thing. But if you're fearing things that are being created out of your own mind that aren't there, which If you're just fearing things for fear, you're presuming on God's sovereignty and his ability to keep you. So, and again, this comes from my having read every verse on fear (laughs) in the Bible. So we have, and now what I believe that he was praying about is he's sweating drops of blood, he's dying in Gethsemane. Okay, physically he's dying in Gethsemane and his prayer is, Father, I'm supposed to be going to the cross, but if I'm supposed to die here, you know, somehow you changed the plan since I've been down here. If I'm supposed to die, I'm willing to drink this cup, but I want it to pass. I am in the minority. There are others that believe what I, what I believe. I'm not going to criticize anybody. I'm telling you what I believe. I tell you why I believe it. Uh, it makes more sense to me than all of a sudden he says, all through this book and even up to this hour, he's been saying, I'm going to the cross, 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 and I'm going to, cross, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect. To me, it makes no sense for him all of a sudden in Gethsemane to say, "Uh, "Father, I don't want to go to the cross." Okay, I've been preaching it for four years, and I'm going to the cross, and all of a sudden saying, "No, I don't. You know, I don't really don't want to go there." Okay, it just doesn't. It doesn't fit with anything that he came. He came to be the sacrifice. He came to be the lamb. He's been ministering for four years, knowing that he's going to be the lamb. Probably knew it before that, but you know, for four years that he's teaching. He knows he's going to be the lamb, going to the cross and resurrecting. He
1: said that he was fully God and he was fully man. And he would probably still have a sense of fear.
0: When did Adam and Eve? When did Adam and Eve get their their fear?
1: After they sinned.
0: After they sinned. He's never
1: sinned.
0: Before sin, they did not know fear because God was completely in control of every aspect of their life, and they knew it. I believe, through my study of the Scripture, that fear is sin, abnormal an un, un, unvalid fear unvalid. okay if you're being a, if you're standing in front of an army and being charged down with an army then you probably have a good reason to have fear and try to go find some place to hide too much there for me to believe that he's afraid of the cross and and like I say what isn't, what ends up being taught under that line of thinking is well see Jesus was afraid, so just pray to God and get your get yourself together and serve God and God will deliver you through your you know, through your fear. Not a bad teaching in, in, in per se, but it doesn't fit the context of everything Jesus has been saying up to this point. Okay? I'm not gonna argue if somebody wants to believe the other way, that's between you and God and and God will work on it. No, I'm not I'm just saying I will challenge anybody who doesn't believe that fear is a sin to read every verse in the Bible about fear. There's only fourteen hundred of them. They break down into three distinct groups. Just a statement of they were afraid. No, no, no bad or negative about it. One-third of them are fear not. There's almost 400 verses that say fear not, okay, which goes back into what I'm saying, fear is a sin. And the other things, the only thing we're told to fear is to fear God, and that's the other third of the verses. And if our fear is in God and we are told not to fear in anything else, why? Because God is in control. If God is in control, I have nothing to fear from the, from the future. Nothing. No matter what comes my way, God's in control of it. He has a plan for it. And He has a reason for what comes my way. And as long as I to- totally, truly believe He's in control, He's got a plan, and nothing comes His way that He doesn't allow, what do I have to be afraid of? And fear will bring us as long as it doesn't paralyze us, can bring us to God. But that is a Romans 8.28 principle. All things work together for good because he would have brought you closer to him without the fear if you allowed him to. Or all the trouble you got. Or all the trouble that comes into it. So we, we see here what is this cup. And we're not going to hammer it too deeply because you know, I've told you what I believe. i told you what the other side is. Because I believe, I personally believe that He was dying because he was sweating drops of blood. He was being crushed. Satan was trying to keep him from the cross. Okay? If Satan could have killed him in Gethsemane, he wouldn't have died on the cross. And then there wouldn't have been any redemption for us. Okay? It was Satan's last big push to destroy Christ in his humanity. And I believe that he was, you know, because remember... Even though he was fully God, he was telling them, not even I know when, when I'll be returning. Not even I know when the millennial kingdom is going to happen. There were certain, certain things that he was not having access to because of his position on earth as in the flesh. So there was this idea of, Father, I... You know, before creation, we, we decided I was going to go to this cross. We created man knowing I was going to go to the cross. I've been telling my disciples for four years I've been going to the cross, and now I'm almost dead here in the garden. You know, and I totally believe that was the cup that he was talking about. And, and I've given you my reasons for why I think it fits into the scriptures. It fits into all the fear knots, and it fits into God's sovereignty, and it fits into why would he be asking for this cup to pass. Yeah, he's all along. Oh, he's been saying for four years to his disciples, "I'm going to the cross."
1: Yeah. Now all of a sudden, they said to be afraid of
0: it. And and again, the answer that you'll get from those who believe that the, the cross was what he was praying is that you know he's he's a he's fully human, and all of a sudden the whole weight of what he's getting ready to do falls upon him. And I understand their argument. I just disagree with it. There's a full weight that falls upon him, but. He's known all along that it's going to happen. So, I and I'll give you both. I'm giving you both sides, so you don't, you know. So that if anybody gives you their, you know, what, why they believe it, then and I can almost understand where they're coming from. All of a sudden, he's 12 hours away from it, and all of a sudden, the humanity in him says, you know, hey, I'm going to die. Uh, and again, that comes to what do you believe about fear as well? And because of my belief about fear. I cannot allow him to be afraid of death in the Garden of Gethsemane because then he has committed sin. If he
1: knew he was going to die, I also knew he was going to be resurrected.
0: So if he, he just told him moments before. Right,
1: so if he knew he was being resurrected, why would he really be scared?
0: And not only that, what did we say earlier? We as Christians should be looking forward to death because it means we go to heaven and be with the Father. So even if he wasn't going to be resurrected, there's still, I get to go back home. Okay, so there's really no reason for him to fear other than doubting the word of God, which in and it, in it of itself would be a sin. Everything about this is if, if he was saying, even I don't want to go, you know, I'm not looking forward to going to heaven or resurrecting, he's not, he's not having faith in God, and anything not of faith is sin. Did he know from the, from the before time that the terrible death he was going to die already? Well, he knew everything, and it's—he so knew the death, death he that is. he knew the death that he was having. The hardest thing about that is how do you how do you know something that has never ever happened? How do you know the pain of being separated from the Father and the Spirit when it's never happened? You know, but he knows everything. So I mean, you can drive yourself nuts trying to figure out, <laughs> figure out all this stuff yeah he knew everything even though it had never happened in all of eternity he still knew the pain of what it was going to be to separate himself and be scourged and you know he definitely knew because he had agreed i'm going to go through the complete punishment that it'll take to buy man back all right and he knew that from before the creation when he then when he was incarnate when when after that he knew i don't know you know it's kind of hard to figure out how much he knew as a baby and how much he knew as a toddler for us, we're pretty angry. exactly the
1: pain of being separated from God was more
0: than the pain from being the physical pain definitely I've said on two there's two events in your life that might give you an inkling of what it was like for God to be separated from himself one would be your really first true love okay that very first one that when you got you know when you finally broke up, you were totally devastated, the world was going to end, why did life keep going, Uh, you know, it'll never be happy happy again. Uh,
1: For four days in the face. Yeah,
0: Yeah. okay, now that is minimal and ridiculous to compare to it, but that is one of the two events in our life that would be some understanding. The other one is a husband and wife that have lived a long life together with a good marriage, and one of them dies. That is probably closer to what the father and the son felt even though even that is not comparable. But
1: they're the closest to being one.
0: But those two things are probably the closest we can have to what the father and son would have felt and neither one of them uh, you know that's like holding up a barely struck match to a to a flamethrower flame and saying, this is, this is the difference, you know. Or, here's my, here's my flashlight compared to a uh, li- lighthouse or, a su- or the sun. Yeah. We're not going to hammer on this hard, but I'm just going to tell you, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it.
1: At what point was he separated from God?
0: When he became sin. On the cross, when he became sin, he was separated from the Father.
1: I, I guess I'm trying to figure out at what, what, what point he became sin. Was it after he died?
0: When he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is when the Father turned his back because he became sin. All the sins of the world were placed upon him. And the Father turned his back, and at that point, he was isolated from the Father. I personally believe that was the worst thing about it. Yes, there was great physical pain, there was great scourging, the, the, the crown of thorns, the, the beating that he took, you know, that was all bad physically. But you know, we, can, we can put up with a lot of physical pain, especially if you have a good enough reason to put up with it. But when you get despair because you're left alone, that is when you will really normally fall apart. So I wonder, as Christians, do we really
1: even think about that. We just think, I think we just
0: think about the physical. I, have no, I don't think I've heard any pastor ever talk about, take that back, yes, I guess we did recently, Talk about the emotional pain that was the cross when he when he was separated from the Father. It's like but it's very rare. Most pastors never teach about that portion of what yeah. was done. But he's saying this cup, and he's and he's under pressure. And whichever way you believe, want to believe, it's not that really big a difference. in, in other words, I think it has so, so, that the other the the majority view has some real serious doctrinal issues that have to be dealt with. But if that's what people want to believe, it's not ruining most of their lives. Well,
1: I think they were interested either. Why all of a sudden, if the gets is he having all these problems?
0: Well, that's why I never believed it when I was a teenager. Yeah. Every time I heard them talk about it, I didn't believe it as a teenager. Because in my mind, okay, he just told him he was going to die. A couple chapters before that, he told him he was going to die. And a chapter before that, he was going to tell him. In this chapter, he told him several times he's going to die. Why? Why would all of a sudden he say, I'm afraid to go to the cross? You know, that was my thinking as a teenager. It wasn't until I got to be in my 20s that I finally heard somebody give the minority opinion on, on that that I go, okay, that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, again, am I going to criticize anybody who holds, especially holds a majority opinion? No, you know, you're in good company. If you don't want to believe me, you are in good company to believe that, it was, that he was afraid of the cross because most, probably 90% of Christianity, Believes that it was fear of the cross. I just can't buy that. So
1: you think, or I think, like the sweating of blood is that like an internal fight with the devil?
0: I think he was just being pressed so hard by the devil, mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. You know, give up uh, one more one more temptation to try to say, give up. You know, you don't have to go to the cross. I, you know, we can kill you right here, or you know, go back to the very beginning when he was saying. You know, if you just bow down to worship me, you don't even have to go to the cross, and I'll give you all—I'll give you this whole world if you'll just bow down to me.
1: It's sweating blood does that go back to the shedding of blood? How's
0: that? that how the, no, Luke's the only one that mentions the the shedding of the, the sweating of blood because he's a physician. It would have been something that intrigued him. It is a physical—it is a physical ailment that can happen even in this day if somebody is too burdened and over-consumed with fear and trembling and pressure, they can get so bad in their own, in their own life that they will wor- basically worry themselves sick or to death, literally. And the blood vessels will start popping, and they will sweat. Technically, they're not sweating blood. They're, the blood is getting into the sweat, you know, and it's reddish, reddish sweat. But it literally can lead to death. It is a physical ailment that's out there. You can look it up. I can't remember what it's called. It's, uh, but it is a physical ailment when somebody worries too much or is under too much pressure in their life, and it usually leads to death. All right? Uh, and so to me, that is what he was going through in Gethsemane was this whole Satan trying to kill him. Now, again doesn't matter to me whether people agree with me or not. You know, you, if you want to agree with the majority, I'm not going to argue with it. I mean, its I won't, I won't argue with you on it. You know, you, you, you stand or fall before God. I just, I have never been able to believe it, even as a teenager. I didn't, buy the, I didn't buy the majority view and still don't to this day now that I've done my research and come up with alternative reason for it. On we go. And he came to his disciples and he found them asleep and said, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus was praying for one hour watch and pray you know be alert and pray with me go to the Father be alert you know be a watchman you know watch for danger watch for watch for God just be alert but be alert and be praying there's something going on here and you should they should have understood that I mean it's he says I'm sorrowful unto death has he ever used that language to to them anywhere you know he's always He's always seeming to be upbeat with them. And all of a sudden he says, you know, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorrowful unto death. I'm, you know, I'm going to go pray. You know, I need you all to pray with me. And unfortunately, the church doesn't pray often enough or hard enough. And we fall into the same category as the disciples. We, we sing, a, sing a hymn, sweet hour of prayer. For most of it is sweet minute of prayer, <laughs> you know, uh, if it's that long for a lot of people. The, even, even in the 1700s, it, there was a pastor who said that there's going to come a time when people will not endure two hours of church. What do we find in today? Go an hour and, you know, you go past an hour in a lot of, in a lot of churches, they're ready to hang you to the pastor if he goes past an hour. And even in the 16, 17, 1800s, you went to church at nine, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and you were probably there until 4 or 5 o'clock in the, in the early, uh, late afternoon. Because it was just that important now you had a break where everybody went and had their you know lunch on the on the on the grounds and then you'd gather back up and sing some more songs and have more teaching but you would end up going from ten to about one just serving the service then you'd have a short you know short hour hour and a half of break and then you'd go back in for more singing and, and, and teaching and that wasn't long ago and yet in our day and age you know Try to try to teach for an hour. Try to teach for two hours. You know, be Paul, preaching so long that the guy falls asleep at midnight and falls out the window. Going to midnight. Start at or seven, seven uh, five or six o'clock, you know. Paul's teaching for six hours. It's
1: really funny that the lot of people you think about in the Bible. Yeah, I'm more like David. You know, most, well, of most of us are more like yeah.
0: that, that man that falls out the window. Yeah, that's And not the person that we would say we're like. But most of us probably are more like him. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus recognized that, you know, in their spirit, they wanted to do what was right. But they just couldn't get it. And to be honest, as they were in their prayer, they probably were trying to pray. And Satan was probably making it very difficult for them to even pray during that period of time because he did not want... Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So he was probably keeping them distracted. How many of us, when we get down to pray, end up thinking about everything but the prayer? Okay, God, I want to pray. Uh, gee, is uh, is Aunt Sally come, supposed to come here this afternoon or is it tomorrow? Oh no, get back to uh, you know. Get down to uh, you know. You, uh, did I have to? Did I? Did I go to? Did Did I go to work? You know.
1: Uh,
0: uh, and you start praying, and it's like you know. Did this? You know. It happens to us all the time, and this is an event that he is very strongly going to try to keep them from praying, which comes down to the watch and pray. Put your guard up. Quit being taken over without thinking about focusing. And you know we, we need to do that as Christians all the time is be focused on God and really focused on him. Be an alert. And if you don't focus on it, the next thing you know, you've gone to sleep. You know, he's telling watch, pray, keep, keep focused. And he went away again a second time and he prayed, Oh, Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, your will be done. Again, it fits into what I'm, what I'm thinking. Either way, you, you can see the, their idea being true. If I have to drink the cross, I'll take it. If we're, you know, God, if I have to die here, then the, and you've changed the plan, I'll, I'll take it, which if, seems to me to fit better into this than, than, than the cross.
1: He willingly drank it. It was up to him whether he had the choice,
0: right? He could have easily said, I just want to die here and not fight anymore. I mean, how many people have you ever known that they just get so tired of living that they give up and almost instantly they die? Actually, he could have probably just gardened out into the desert and never even had to die. Well, he could have done anything. He was God. I mean, uh, we sing a song here. He could have called 10,000 angels. At any point, he could have told the Father, Father, these people are not worth it. I'm coming back home. Uh, But his love for us kept him on the path to the cross. There would have been nothing wrong for him as God to say, these people are not worth what I'm getting ready to face and he could have just abandoned us. It would have been outside of his character, which would not have fit, but technically, he could have said they're not worth it. You can picture, and I've mentioned this, the angels in heaven are supposed to keep him from being hurt. This is God. They're looking at him saying, what's going on? And I, and I really can picture them kind of all at the starting line, all right, Father, when are you going to tell us to go rescue him? This is, are you really going to let him be arrested? Are you really going to let him be beat? Are you really going to let him go to the cross? You know, Father, we're just waiting. You know, give us, give us the go-ahead, and we will kill every man in the on the world that, that is causing this. You know, we'll we'll take care of this. You know, just just let us at it. And he's being, and they're being held back. No, this is what I, this is what we're supposed to do. He's going to be redeeming mankind. And remember, they don't even understand what redemption is because when they sinned, they were cast out. A third of the angels were cast out for their sin from heaven. With no chance of redemption. Dan falls and has redemption offered to him. Something the angels don't understand. Great cost for the redemption. And as Amy said, we need to really start understanding the cost of our redemption. Because if we truly understood the cost of our redemption, it would change the way we think about God and the way we, we respond to him in this world. Everything about what we do would be changed because of the high cost. And then he came back and found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. So he's going to pray three times, let this cup pass. And the second time, he didn't even go wake them up anymore. He says, okay, they're sleeping. God is just, Father, it's just you and me. How many times does Satan try to isolate us? That is one of his strongest attacks on us. You're the only one that's ever had those thoughts. You're the only one that's ever committed that sin. If everybody else knew what you were thinking, they would reject you because you're you are just so awful. Nobody else has ever been like you. And then you repent, you come back, you start telling your testimony, and you find out everybody has, thinks the same way. Everybody's had the same thoughts, and they're, they're happy that you're sharing your testimony because they're going, oh, I thought I was the only one. Satan likes to tell us that there's something new under the sun. That's why I keep going back up. Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that is happening has happened before. Every sin in our life has happened to somebody else. Every attack on us has happened to somebody else and probably is happening to other people in the present tense. Satan wants us to be isolated. He's trying to isolate Jesus in this attack. Okay? You're all alone. And you can hear hear that you're all alone. Your disciples don't even care about you. The Father doesn't seem to be listening to you. You're, You're dying here, and he's not even listening to you. You can picture this attack. This was a big attack from Satan on Jesus. He goes a third time, and then he comes to his disciples, and he says to his disciples, "'Sleep on now and take your rest. "'Behold, the hour is at hand. "'The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. "'Rise, let us go.'" Behold, he is at hand that is to betray me. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was happening. He knew that he was betrayed. He knew that he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to be resurrected. And he says, okay, guys, get ready. You know, basically telling them all hell is going to break loose. The betrayer is coming here to betray me, trying trying to get them ready. And we're going to end there. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for how much you paid for our salvation. Lord, how much you paid so that we could have a relationship with you and the Father. Help us to always be totally aware of that great privilege of being in a relationship for you and also for the great cost of it. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen.